This is an ABC podcast. The other day, an email landed in my inbox from the MIT Technology Review, a media release spruiking an upcoming event. What caught my attention was the heading. AI is the new electricity, it declared. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. There's no doubt that views on the future application of artificial intelligence vary widely, from the impossibly optimistically overblown to the darkly pessimistic. Education specialist Simon Buckingham-Shum is a professor of learning informatics at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's also a former vice president of the Society for Learning Analytics, an international community of researchers focused on the ethical uses of AI in education. Right now, if you walked into the average classroom in a school or in a university, you're not going to see much AI. Schools, of course, are using mainstream products for, you know, producing slides and documents and images and videos, and AI is creeping into those products. But it's not especially educational. It's just they're just using products that have now got AI in them that will help you do clever things, save you some time. What's really interesting is whether we can bring, you know, all that we know about education and and the learning sciences into products to help them coach and give better feedback. So there's not a lot out there at the moment, but where we are seeing the big successes is in the areas where AI performs particularly well. And that's where there are clearly right and wrong answers, where we understand in very great detail what it means to uh, master a particular skill like in science and, and maths. And there are now some really robust results that show that students can learn much more effectively in certain forms of science and maths than they can, in fact, from a traditional teaching program. And those results are now coming out of the labs that have been in universities for a long time and are coming out into products now, often under the heading of adaptive learning. So on the one hand, we've got these amazing results that show that students can learn, for example, a whole semester's work in half a semester and do at least as well, if not better, than students who learned in a traditional way or students in schools in a, in a, in a classroom in, across a state in the US were able to learn three quarters more effectively as judged by really good research results. And, and these, these are becoming available and are spreading. But the teacher has to know how to orchestrate the classroom effectively and their roles are changing slightly as well. So they may not be delivering the content in the same way they used to, but instead they have insight into who's struggling with what and they can provide much more targeted feedback or a much more effective review of homework the following morning. So those are examples of of how the role of the teacher uh, is going to change as well. Talk to us about the idea of intelligence amplification. What does that term mean Mm. in this context? Yeah, so there's a lot of interest in AI versus IA, intelligence amplification or augmentation. So when we say AI, people often worry about automation, that we're just going to put educators out of a job. But all the analysis of you know the future of work suggests that educators are one of the, the least likely kinds of professions to be automated. So there should be less, less worry on that front. IA says, look, let's focus on what people do really well and let's focus on what machines do really well. And it's, it's the system together that's going to get make a real difference. So handing over the simpler tasks to AI, the drudge tasks that no teacher particularly enjoys, answering the same question over and over and over again. You know, that might be face-to-face or it might be in, a, in an online forum. There's now evidence that you can have a, a sort of virtual student watching the questions that are being posted and answering them with a very high degree of accuracy now. 
or coaching students who are just they've, they've got a misconception and it's the same misconception all students go through and we can now actually you know um, teach an ai to recognize that misconception and, and give the student an easier task so ai's got good roles in these more uh, narrow focused areas what's really interesting is thinking about the future and this is where ia really kicks in okay so the future is where we're giving students open-ended problems there may not even be one correct answer what we're really interested in is how do they go about tackling it can they come up with a plausible argument do they use the right kinds of tools at the right time do they talk to the right people in a constructive way these are the sorts of processes that we're interested in students going through as much as whether they actually came up with the right answer sometimes and and that's where learning analytics and artificial intelligence have got some some contributions to make because of course we can track what a student is doing if it's digitally visible in very high definition far higher definition than a human can keep track of 30 40 or even 100 students is the value then of that approach that you still keep teachers in the equation while you're utilizing the technology absolutely and you know as any teacher will tell you there's far more to a student than whether they come out with the right answers the goal of education a holistic education is about character and uh, about their attitude and and willingness to take risks and step out of their comfort zone. And a good teacher is going to recognize when a student comes in looking very down and low about something. You know, students are coming into schools with all sorts of things going on in their family life. No machine is going to be taking that into account anytime soon. Is there a realistic danger that a focus on AI in the classroom could inadvertently or or perhaps even advertently lead to the de-skilling of teachers in the future? There are two answers to that. I can give you a definite maybe on that one. (laughs) So there's one scenario where the teachers are not being de-skilled, but they're being properly upskilled. And that requires vision and foresight and leadership and resources from those in positions to provide that, to upskill our teaching workforce, our teacher trainers, our academics in the university system. And they will simply be released to do the kinds of learning that we all agree is the best kind of learning. It's authentic, it's engaging, it's socially rich, because we've simply released time in the curriculum when other material can be engaged with, delivered more computationally. The more nightmare dystopic scenario is that we could have an AI divide open up, which would be where the rich kids get access to the best AI and humans who know how to use it very expertly. And the disadvantaged cohorts are getting access to poor AI with far less human support. And we've already seen protests in the US and in the UK against some big platforms who have rolled out tutoring and students are just spending inordinate amounts of time on their own in front of a screen and are complaining that they're not getting social contact with their peers, with teachers, and they're not learning the kinds of higher order skills that they, they want to learn. So this can be done well and it can be done badly. I saw a news story just the other day from China. There are schools there that are measuring students' brainwaves to get a better understanding of their concentration, you know, their understanding of things and their performance during class time. Is that going too far, do you think? I would say yes, it is. 
those accounts, which seem to be reliable, are causing a lot of concern amongst educationalists and technologists around the world, to be honest. This technology, like, you know, putting on a, a brain skull cap or um, trying to do facial recognition from cameras in the classroom to detect whether a student is supposedly engaged or not, or interpreting, you know, signals off a, a fitness bracelet that the students have on. These technologies are still very, very early, and the scientific basis for the kinds of inferences that people are trying to make of this is questionable. So this is where we have to look at what kind of education system do we want to create? The Chinese government has to be said, I think is fair to say, they operate to a slightly different ethical models to what we're used to. All the usual ethical checks and balances are not in place that we would expect to see here before you roll something like this out at scale without consent. So on the one hand, we can be quite critical of those kinds of examples because they look like quite sort of dystopic visions. But I think there's a bigger question here, and it's what kind of education system do we want to try and create with these technologies? Alan Finkel, the chief scientist for Australia, gave this fantastic speech about what kind of society do we want to be, and let's use our technology to try and create that reality. And we have to ask the same question around education. What kind of education system do we want to offer? So let me tell you about a magical tool, a product that I've got, okay? It's guaranteed to raise your children's ATAR result. Is that a product that schools should be rushing to buy and that parents should be rushing to buy? Because this is exactly the kind of tool that's now having such a massive impact in China because in that context, there's such a competition for you know university places and parents will do everything they can to get their kids into university and that kind of coaching and hothouse tutoring is what they're willing to pay for. But the bigger question is, is that kind of assessment and the stress it creates and the fact that many thought leaders are, are arguing that this is no longer an assessment system equipping the next generation for our future society, that raises the question of whether we should be trying to invest R&D into creating those kinds of products or products that are going to equip students with the other kinds of competencies. And that's what we've been focusing on at UTS. And what direction are we heading? I mean, you're interested in trying to ensure that AI is used effectively and ethically in education in the future, but are there many others looking in, looking in the same direction? Yes, indeed. We focus on trying to give good formative feedback to students on their writing to improve their critical thinking, on their teamwork to give them feedback on how well they worked as a team and so forth. And Australia, in fact, is very lucky. We have some of the world's leading groups in the field of learning analytics and AI and education right here in, in Australia and indeed here in Sydney. There are many people in education who are suspicious of data analytics and AI and we're busy trying to work with them and with teachers and students to help them shape these technologies to become tools that they trust. I mean, ultimately, this comes down to trust. Do we trust these things? And if so, why? And what are the standards for trusting these tools? There are genuine concerns, aren't there, in this area, but it is also an exciting area for technology development and for education, isn't it? Well, it is very exciting, and we're trying to walk the tightrope between being excited about the possibilities to really move education forward in the ways that many, many of the thought leaders in the field have long argued we need to move, but it just simply wasn't practical or affordable. 
as well as engaging very, very seriously with the quite legitimate concerns people have about big data and surveillance and so forth. We have companies with huge data sets now. Where is that data going? What are they doing with it? Did anybody give consent? When a government licenses a product that they're going to roll out right across the state or the country, how much thought has been gone into, into where that data is going and what might be done with it? What will it take to trust these tools? You know, I mean, you and I will get on a plane and trust our life to that pilot and that airline. We don't understand how planes work, most of us, but we're willing to do that. That's because over time we have created a discipline and a set of checks and balances that make sure that most of the time these planes are safe. And uh, it's, it's exactly the same for this technology. It's very new. People are understandably wary, but the, the possibilities are very exciting. But as Alan Finkel said, what kind of education society, that's my version of his statement, do we want to create? And let's make sure we release the resources and incentivize work to create that educational experience and outcome and not one that we look at and fills us with horror. Simon Buckingham-Sham, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. And I should mention that Professor Buckingham Shum has just co-edited the 50th anniversary edition of the British Journal of Educational Technology. As we've heard, one of the regular warnings about artificial intelligence is that its application can magnify unethical behaviour. It's an understandable concern. But are there instances where it might be unethical not to use artificial intelligence for a particular job or task? Well, Brett Greenstein says yes. He's the Senior Vice President of the IT services company Cognizant and their Global Head of AI and Analytics. Every time a new technology or capability is introduced, we always think about the risk of it. And I'm sure this was true when the first antiseptics were used. You know, I'm sure this is true the very first time anyone cooked a meal. It's obviously healthier to have cooked food than not, but I'm sure they saw fire and saw danger and worried, you know, what's going to happen to me. The reality is that There are things that AI is better at than people. They're very narrow focused problems, but there are definitely things AI is better at. And it is unethical in many ways to not use the best possible solution to get an outcome. Simply put, it would be almost malpractice for a person making important business decisions to make them on a whim or a guess or a spreadsheet or any other suboptimal decision approach. When you have tools that can look at vast amounts of data, can understand patterns, and can tell you your best options, which are still your choice, but at least you know what they are. You're operating blind otherwise. And that's not to downplay the serious concerns that many people have about the possible misuses of artificial intelligence. You're not saying that, are you? No, certainly not. There's absolutely cases here where you have to really think about where AI is used, but you get to these points, for example, radiology, where imaging systems with AI can catch things people don't catch. Now, I still want a radiologist with infinite amount of training to diagnose whatever's going on with me. But I'd want to know that radiologists are looking at systems like AI that can look at those images and catch what they don't catch or recommend what they might want to look more at so they're getting the best possible advice and guidance. One area in particular where you believe it would be unethical not to use AI, to utilise the, the power of AI, is in work that is, is hazardous or dangerous to human beings. It's quite an obvious one, isn't it, that very few people would have uh, problems with, I would imagine. Yeah, it's certainly the easiest case. If you need to inspect power lines, you could put a person in a plane, you could put them on a crane. Any of these things introduces unnecessary danger. You put you know, a camera in a drone and you use vision systems and LIDAR systems and others to detect what's happening in a power line, you've increased human safety dramatically. And you're also tirelessly catching 
all kinds of things that camera systems can see that a human operator can look at later that an AI can detect and be a lot safer. But the same would be true for recovery from disasters where you can use vision systems to help detect what's going on and possibly see things people wouldn't see. So an imaging system in AI, for example, can look at visible spectrum the same as we can, but can also look at other spectra we can't see. And so imagine, you know, infrared detection of people trapped in buildings and then letting AI systems go into those dangerous places, see where people might be and sending workers directly to that spot with the safest possible route. That's just better than searching around aimlessly looking for people in buildings. And I think knowing where the strengths of systems like this are and using them for their strengths can be a very powerful way to help people be safer in doing their jobs. And should ethics be the driver of decision-making about when to apply AI? When should ethics be put on the table in this regard? Every time. And this is no different than the ethical behavior of people in business. Most companies have some sort of conduct guidelines that employees sign every year, and it reminds them of their legal and ethical responsibilities and the values of the company. And not every company is the same, but everybody has some set of principles they operate under. And the same must be true for the use of systems, especially learning-based systems, because these systems make decisions. And the reason we have an ethical guidance for people in business is because decisions are where risk gets introduced. I decide to turn left or right. That's a human decision in a car, but it's a machine system that makes that decision in an autonomous vehicle. I should hire this person or that person. We teach people how to do hiring in an ethical way to eliminate bias, to, you know, to consider all conditions that should be considered in hiring. We need to train AI systems that filter through resumes and pick people along with similar ethical considerations. The same is true for data privacy and the use of the way governments can use data. There should be rules and regulations, which we advocate for. We actually actively participate in the World Economic Forum on topics like this because there are reasonable expectations of privacy. There are reasonable expectations that systems can be trusted, that they will answer without bias that they will guide us in the directions that are our goals, not in any other one else's directions. So for example, today, if you speak to Alexa and you get an answer, you have no idea if that answer is in your best interest. But the systems of tomorrow will need to operate under your best interest. The same way you authorize, for example, your use of data when you sign in for an app. When you're using an AI, you should know whether it's working on your behalf or someone else's, whether it's helping sell something for Amazon or helping you accomplish your goals. And that's what I see happening more and more is discussions around the types of regulations and expectations on truthfulness and bias and quality and reliability and robustness of solutions. These are all things that will be built into AI systems as we use them more and more to rely on for decisions. So that's a, a regulatory change in the future that you see coming, but that's also a design change, isn't it, in some cases? It is, although the design is actually easier than the regulation. So finding a balance of regulations that help businesses to still create value but to do so in ways that establish the good of society and the good of employees and the good of customers is a discussion we'll all be having a lot in the coming years. And this is an extension of the data privacy discussions. It's an extension of what we see from social media platforms being asked about fake news and what's fair to share and what's not. These are parts of the discussions of reasonable expectations of truthfulness, reasonable expectations for lack of bias, understanding of who's guiding you when you're talking to an AI. So if you're using an AI to do your job and it's helping you recruit the best employees, you should know what principles it works under. Those should be the ethical guidelines of your company. You should know that it's trying to hire in an unbiased way, find the best talent, pay fairly. If you know the principles as an HR professional and you use it, you'll feel comfortable using it to supplement your job. If you don't trust it because those principles and ethics are not clear to you, then you won't embrace it in the course of your job and you won't be as effective and efficient. So 
I think there's a balance that's coming. I think companies will regulate themselves to some degree based on their brand image and reputation. I think governments will absolutely step in on how data is used, how algorithms are treated and, and how what role bias plays, for example, in the behavior of algorithms and whose responsibility it is when an algorithm behaves in a biased way. So these are coming. And this is part of growing up as an industry, the same way that uh, security, privacy and fair use and all these other things came into the use of the web. Brett Greenstein from the IT services company Cognizant. And you're listening to Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. Now, earlier this year, the British government launched a new Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. And developments in artificial intelligence are at the top of its brief. Its chair is Roger Taylor. The Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation was set up after a couple of reports came out. One was done by the Royal Society and the British Academy, and the other from a committee in the House of Lords, both of which argued that we had reached a tipping point in terms of artificial intelligence, that what was now being done, what DeepMind had achieved, what was happening with facial recognition, with language recognition, with self-driving cars, that it was very clear that... Well, some people will say there's a bit of a hype cycle going on about artificial intelligence, and that's understandable. It's nonetheless true that this is now very real, and it is going to change everything, and that this creates, in the words of the Royal Society, some novel ethical problems. It's not clear how we as societies are going to work with this technology and govern it and to make sure that it operates to our benefit. And they therefore recommended that there ought to be a part of government, an independent body within government that is focused on those problems and is identifying how we can benefit from this technology. And I think it's important to say that our task is not simply to identify the many problems or potential risks that have been identified with this technology. Our task is to try and work out, well, how can we benefit from it? Because it is enormously powerful and the potential benefits are huge. So the onus is on us to try and find out how can we safely use this technology? You've warned that democratic governments need an ethics and governance framework for emerging technologies, for artificial intelligence. And you've said that this is an urgent imperative. Why an urgent imperative? I think one way to understand this is to look at what's happened in societies with the introduction of social media. The decisions about the most powerful technologies for distributing news across societies those decisions used to be taken in editorial newsrooms, in broadcasters and newspapers and other organizations that existed within the country that were subject to the country's laws and which were culturally embedded in that country. And that was part of the sovereignty of, of a particular country. Today in the UK, and I suspect the same in Australia, the most powerful decisions about what information gets distributed to different people is made by robots operating in California that are run by algorithms that are designed to achieve particular objectives for that organization. Now, just to be clear, these technologies are fabulous and they've, they've done wonderful things. Facebook brings people together. It makes businesses able to reach new markets. This is not an attack upon these technologies, but it is simply a recognition that a significant dent has been made in the sovereignty of smaller democratic countries uh, such as the UK or Australia as a result of these technologies. That's just in one field, but we can see as data-driven technologies come to dominate 
a host of other areas, how transport systems work, how health systems work, how security systems work, that if countries are not wholly on top of these technologies, if they don't have the capability to understand how they work, to be able to deploy them safely, to be able to govern them, if we're not able to control these technologies ourselves, we will be faced with a choice of either sacrificing and losing the best systems that the world can offer in terms of, say, healthcare, or simply giving up our sovereignty and accepting that we have to become takers of technologies from elsewhere. And so this is a problem. We have, we have, as it were, two poles. We have the US, which is very much driven on the basis that the market will sort this out and leave it to the corporations. But the, the worry there is these technologies do tend towards monopoly. The bigger you are, the more data you have, the better you can do things. So there's a natural market tendency towards monopoly. And at the other pole, we have China, which has gone the opposite direction and is embracing these technologies, but it is very much in the control of the government. And the issue for countries such as the UK and Australia is we probably don't want either of those models. We need a model that enables us to benefit from these technologies, but where appropriate levels of democratic oversight exist. There is a plurality of organizations, whether they be companies or civil society organizations that are able to understand how technology is affecting us, that are able to offer services to people. We need a system that is consistent with free speech, with free markets, but also with a social democratic system in which the government maintains an appropriate level of sovereignty over its own people. And is the danger that if if we don't jump in now, even though it's very late in the day, that we may end up with a system that is heavily influenced by the, the sorts of systems that operate, say, in authoritarian China? That's exactly the problem. That's exactly it. And we, the real risk is, well, on the one hand, we have to think very deeply and very carefully about the ethical risks here and chart a way through them. We also need to recognize if we don't get our act together, if we don't work out how we can use our own data about our own citizens to identify how we wish to use these technologies to help ourselves, we will end up having to choose between either foregoing the benefits or using technology created by countries or companies in circumstances where we have very little leverage over how it's been deployed. And yet a lot of our attempts to date at appropriate regulation have been found wanting, haven't they? Well, I think one of the perhaps most positive signs about where we currently are is that the big technology companies themselves have identified this issue. They are very well aware that they are now moving to spaces which they don't necessarily have social permission to operate in. To give you one example, I think the work that Facebook has done around the impact of social media on mental health, the thinking about the ability of social media to help support people who are depressed and thinking of harming themselves. On the one hand, we need to just acknowledge that it is enormously impressive that they have stepped up to that. They have said, look, we, we can't just act as if, you know, you could take a view, look, it's none of our business. People just use our system. You know, we're just here as a conduit. But they haven't taken that view. They have acknowledged that they have this power to help people and that they are therefore obliged to do something about it. But what they also recognize is that issues of how you identify people as suffering from mental health conditions, what the appropriate responses are, that these are areas that traditionally have been, the decisions have been made by medical authorities, by public health authorities within legal frameworks. So as Facebook has, has identified, they do need to get some kind of social permission and, and make sure that the way they are operating does align with society's values. I mean, there is clearly, you need to be really clear about this, there is often a commercial conflict between financial interests of a company, which might, for example, argue for always trying to build systems that keep people on the platform for as long as possible. And if that means you need to sort of serve up more disturbing content, the algorithm will simply decide to serve up more disturbing content. The companies themselves, they've recognized that this is not 
going to be sustainable. Now, you've said that you do believe that the technology companies are looking to be cooperative in this area, but our governments, are our, our democratic governments, are they willing to take on this kind of issue to try and solve some of the problems we have around public trust and the development of technology? I think they are. I think they've clearly demonstrated. I think particularly the impact of what's happened with social media and concerns around political stability have certainly woken governments up very sharply to the need to demonstrate they can exercise a degree of control. But I would also say that there's often sometimes a council of despair around the large platforms because of their global power. And I, I personally think that that is tractable and I think there is a desire to engage. And I think we can continue to benefit from these systems while at the same time addressing some of the problems. But I would also stress that that is just one area of this technology, that there are a host of other areas in financial services, in, in healthcare, in transport systems, in education, in, where we are in a very different situation, where I think the governments have a very strong role to play in identifying how we actually start to adopt these technologies and use them in ways that are beneficial. The chair of the UK's new Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, Roger Taylor. You've been listening to Future Tense. The producer for this program was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.